0: Good morning, Good morning. indeed, uh, worthy is our Lord. If you've been doing the uh, catechism, we're on question 11, what does the Lord require in the sixth, seventh, and eighth commandments? That is, do not murder, do not commit adultery, and do not steal. Good lessons for all of us to remember. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're in the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 16. Today we'll look at verses 16 to 40. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father, we thank you for that which you have guided human authors to write so that there is no error. Your inspired, inerrant word. And Father, you give us your word that we might know you, and we might know what to think and how to act, the motives and attitudes that we ought to live, the things that we ought to avoid. Father, guide us today as we continue a study in the book of Acts, one in which we see some of your apostles giving thanks and praise and worship to you. Regardless of circumstances, may that be true not only in their lives, but in our lives as well. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. Her name was Jill. She was in a church I pastored three decades ago in Texas. She was a front row dweller. We don't have a single front row dweller this morning in the hour. I'm not a front row dweller either. I'm not a second row. I'm like way in the very back. But I appreciate front row dwellers. They've got bravery. They've got courage. And I can see if they're fooling around with their phones. Well, this particular front row dweller was not only a front row dweller, but she was dead center middle. In that particular church, we didn't have a center aisle. We had side aisles, and she would be right there. Jill had three young girls. And four times, on average, sometimes five, rarely less than four, during the middle of my sermon, the beginning of my sermon, the end of my sermon, and sometimes somewhere else, she would get up, she would go to the back, go to where her children were, look in the window, and then come back up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. I mean, it was kinetic exercise. I was hoping that her exercise was going to, you know, count towards my body. She was up and down all the time. And periodically I would hear little comments and I thought, well, if she would only sit on the edge, nobody would notice. Or if she would sit halfway back or in the back, nobody would notice. But because she was dead center, front row, in the middle, her up down, up down, up down, up down was a little bit distracting. But that's nothing compared to the distractions that Paul and Silas felt in the church, or not yet church, the budding church in Philippi. I'd like to pick up in Acts 16. Let's read verses 16 all the way to 19. As they were going to the place of prayer. Now I think what that means is there's not a synagogue. You need 10 Jewish men for that and we'll see in the life of Lydia that they also met out by the water. So we probably don't yet have a synagogue in Philippi, I don't think we have a church yet. As they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl, how tragic, who had a spirit of divination. Uh, actually, that's uh, technically a spirit or a feeling of demonic activity. That's what the text is saying. She had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us and crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And then she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her and it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Now, I think this is quite a bit more disruptive than Jill. Paul and Silas have come to an area, Philippi, that doesn't yet have a church, doesn't have a Christian community, doesn't have an outreach. They're trying to win people over to salvation by faith in Christ alone. They're proclaiming salvation in Jesus. And there is this gal who has a spirit of divination and she's proclaiming out loud, these are servants of the most high God. Certainly what she's declaring is true, but by doing so, she's almost associating herself with Paul and Silas and in the minds of the untrained, they might come to the erroneous conclusion that what Silas and Paul and this demonized girl believe is all simultaneous. This is a subtle way of Satan to infiltrate individuals who might be interested in the gospel. Now this spirit of divination literally is a python spirit. That's what the text says. Pneuma Pythona. It's it's a python spirit. When we think of a python, we think of a snake, but that's not what's meant. What actually is meant is a dragon. She has a dragon spirit within her. Now, why does my text change the language? It's because almost none of us understand mythology from Delphi. And this is coming from Delphi, about 190 miles away from Philippi. And what we have there is Apollos. And Apollos is the god of just about everything in mythology. But in this particular account, what Apollos does is he gives a clairvoyant spirit in Delphi gals. Now we read about this in the oracles, that is the proclamations of Delphi. And what we learn is that Apollos apparently slayed a dragon in Delphi, which is about 50 miles from Athens, but about a two-hour drive. And at that point, he then gave abilities to Delphi girls, priestesses, to begin to Share the future with others. And so these Delphi girls became very valuable in the Roman Empire. Very few of them had control of themselves. Many of them indeed were demonized. And they were sold all over the Roman Empire. And they were known by the Roman Empire army. If you were an officer or even an enlisted soldier and you were given a new assignment in which you would probably go into some kind of combat, you might find a Delphi gal, and you would pay her or her masters, and you would ask several questions, am I gonna survive this? Are we going to win this? And these gals, often inhabited by demons, often gave correct information. Because although the demonic world is not omniscient like God. They don't know all things. They don't know the future. They've been around for a long time and they know more than we do and their guesses are better than ours. And so these Delphi gals became very famous throughout the Roman Empire. And here we have this young gal who is demonized, abused by Satan, who are following Paul and Silas, declaring these are servants of the Most High God. In fact, they were. But again, in doing so, to the uninitiated, it might seem to some that what she believes and the demonic that she is around is okay with Paul and Silas. Something we know is not true. So after many days, verse 18, Paul cast the demon from her. And the text says that many are amazed. Now we might ask, why didn't he do so earlier? I suppose that in the providence of God, maybe there was the need for a number of people to see this, that they might recognize the greater power over Satan is God. And so the demonic is defeated. Now the text does speak of the demonic inhabiting her body. If the Bible is inerrant, if it's without error, if it's inspired, if it's God-breathed, then we need to realize that the demonic is real, that there are Satans and his demons, and sometimes they actually inhabit individuals. And yet if we are Christ followers, if we have believed in Christ, we ought to be weary of the demonic, weary of Satan, but we serve a greater master, infinitely so. 1 John 4, 4 says, greater is he who is in you, believer, than he, Satan, who is in the world. And so while I have a weary eye of the demonic and I have a weary eye of the enemy of my soul, Satan, I do not fear him because greater is he, Christ, who is in me, and the spirit of Christ who is in me than (laughs) Satan who is in the world. And we remember that every day... You and I have the privilege to put on the armor of God from Ephesians six ten to 18. Every day we have the privilege of reminding ourselves of the gospel, salvation by faith in Christ alone, and he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. So we have the shoes shod with the gospel of peace. And we have the belt of truth. And because God is an unlying God, Titus 1-2, we are to be purveyors of truth. And we have the breastplate of righteousness. And remember, the imputed righteousness of Christ is on us if we believe in Jesus. And we have the power of the Spirit within us. And the bondage of sin is broken in our lives. So for the first time, we can say no to sin and yes to God. And we have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We ought to be in the biblical text learning about God and knowing him. And we have the shield of faith to put out the fiery darts of the evil one. And remember in Hebrews eleven two two and three, it says that without faith, it is impossible to believe or to please God. And so give us faith, grow our faith. And then we have the helmet of salvation, which is the perseverance of the saints. It's a the security we have in Christ, and all that is tied together with a life of prayer. So you and I need not fear the enemy of our soul. Yet we ought to be weary for the demonic is real. He is powerful. And some predictions of those who are led by the demonic are true. It's not unreal, the demonic world. I love the way Eugene Unger puts it. He was a former professor of theology at Dallas Seminary. He says, Paul's encounter with a mediumistic fortune teller demonstrates that not everything in fortune telling is fraud and humbug. Real fortune telling powers are demonic. The girl told the truth, receiving her knowledge from demons. So some predictions from fortune tellers and mediums, some things we learn tragically so from horoscopes or Ouija boards or harmonic conversions or crystals or the like. Some of what those things predict can come true. But in every case, we are fooling around with the demonic. And if that has been our life, we confess, we agree with God that that's sin, and we turn and we repent, and we Turn from it by saying in the power of God's spirit, not my own power, but in the power of God's spirit, I resist Satan and I want to embrace the things of God alone. Paul and Silas understand this truth and they cast the demon from this poor gal. Again, why didn't they expel the demon immediately? Maybe it was so that an audience would be around. And the audience would look up and see a great God, much greater than the demonic in this world. Well, I want to continue in the text. I want to read verses 20 to 25. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, that is when they had brought Paul and Silas to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. I'm reading that as a slander, by the way. I think that spit out of their mouths, not said, just neutral. These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them. They gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many burrows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet to the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. When Paul and Silas free the demonized girl, Her owners have lost out. They have gained profit from her ability to sometimes accurately predict the future because the demons are pretty good guessers. They've been around for a long time. And having lost this means of income, they want to punish the offenders. They want to punish Paul and Silas. So I think they use the word Jew in a slanderous way. And then they have them arrested. They have their... Shirts pulled from them and they're beaten with rods. The beaters are called lictors, from which we get our phrase, I gave them a lictin or a licking. This is about a half inch rod. It's able to leave wounds and welts and scars, and depending on how many strokes, it can actually kill an individual. And having beaten them, then they're put in a prison. Now, when we think of prison, we tend to think of the cell with bars. That's probably not what we ought to think. Although I have not been to a prison in Philippi, I've been to the Mamertine prison in Rome where both Peter and Paul were. And if you've been there, you know that it's subterranean. You are lowered down some 30 to 40 feet You are put in a place where they give you no water. They give you no food. The air is still. It's filled with lice. It's filled with rats. It's filled with filth. It's a disgusting place. And at the bottom in this place, they had stocks where they would lock their ankles so that they cannot sleep on their sides. And if they attempt to sleep on their back, their back is all open from the beating that they took. It's it's a horrible experience. And so how did Paul and Silas respond? I've got to ask the question, how would I respond? How would you respond? They begin to sing. I'd love to know what they sang, amazing grace, probably not. That's gonna come another 1500 years, but something like amazing grace or how great thou art. Not me, I'd be singing rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Come get me, beam me up, Scotty, get me out of here. And yet they're singing praises. And then verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns and the prisoners were listening listening to them. I, I don't get this. How can you possibly pray in a time like this except for yourself? How can you sing praises except get me out of here? But they're singing in such a way that the others who are in this predicament are listening. There's something unique about their prayers, something unique about their songs. I bet most prisoners have heard prayers, but maybe not like Paul and Silas. It must be so God-centered, so other-centered that they begin to listen. It reminds me of Job. Job is one of those patriarchs that is just utterly amazing. You remember the account in chapter one. He's a fantastically wealthy man. He's married with children. He's got good health. Life is going exceptionally well. And then God gives permission for Satan to touch him, afflict him, except he cannot die. And you remember his children tragically... Die. You remember he loses all of his wealth. His body is covered in boils. His own wife just says curse God and die. Get it over with. Curse the God that gave you much and has taken much from you. And in chapter 1 verse 20 it says he tore his clothes. He shaved his head. He sat down and and worshipped. He sat down and worshipped. Clearly, his eyes are not on circumstances. Clearly, Paul and Silas' eyes are not on circumstances. Paul and Silas have no idea whether they're going to live or die. Will they be a martyr like Stephen in Acts 7? Or like James in Acts 12? Or will they be freed? They don't know. They have no idea if they're going to live or die. They know that they're beaten. Their backs are raw. They're in fetters and chains. Ankle bracelets. In a subterranean prison. And yet they sing praises to God. Because somehow they have this understanding. That praise is not about what God has done for us. While it's okay to praise God and thank God for what he has done, we thank him and praise him in spite of circumstances. He is worthy. He creates us, he sustains us. And if we know his son Jesus, we have a future and a hope. And when we leave this earth, we have something greater than we could ever imagine. We worship God because of who he is, not because of what he's done though he's done so much, that alone would be enough to worship him in spite of circumstances, but we worship him beyond that. We worship because he is worthy of worship. I want to be like Paul and Silas and Job who don't keep their eyes just on circumstances. And I don't know where you are today. Some perhaps are just enjoying life, praise God, thank him for it. And some maybe are suffering, maybe because of one's own sin, maybe because of somebody else's sin, maybe because we live in a sin-tainted world and things are not going well. And we do have the privilege to come to God with our prayers and ask him to remove the pain that we're going through. But regardless... We keep our eyes on Jesus. We praise Jesus. We thank Jesus. We exalt this great Jesus. I remember a while ago, a person came into my office. It was a gal. And if you ever come into my office and you want to talk, almost a hundred percent of the time, I'll say, hey, let's let's pray. And I'll ask God to guide our attitudes and our motives and give us his wisdom. That's just kind of what I do. And it's not because I think that's what I ought to do because I'm a pastor. It's what I think I ought to do because I'm a person. It's what we ought to do. Ask God to guide our attitudes and our thoughts, our motives, and give us his wisdom. But before I could say this, this gal just launched in. She had an agenda in prayer my prayer was not part of it. And in the agenda, she was very upset with her spouse and she was very upset with her work. And she went on and on and then took a breath. I said, Hey, let's pray. And so finally we prayed and I had said amen. And then she launched into her children and their spouses. And then she launched into some of my coworkers. Well, I don't do really well with that. I have like the most amazing co-workers in the world. And, and then she launched into my sermons. Okay. She only gave me five things I was doing wrong and need to change, which would be like the introduction, the illustrations, the content, the conclusion, and what passages I was choosing. Besides that, I was doing really well. And then she left. And I realized that she probably had some really good points. And she probably had some things that a number of us need to work on, certainly myself. But the attitude and the motive was was not God-centered. It wasn't about praising the Lord. It was so self-centered. It was myopic. Just about what she wanted In the world, God calls us to something different. He calls us to worship him, even regardless of circumstances. We don't worship God simply because of what we will get back. In this regard, I think of a silly story. It's of a church that was struggling financially, and the pastor got up, and he said to the congregation, can you give a little bit more today? We could really use it nothing wrong with that message. But then he foolishly added, whoever gives the most beyond their normal giving will let you choose three hymns. And before he came up to preach, an usher came to him, gave him a little note. And the note said that someone had given 10 C notes, 10 hundred dollar bills put together in a paper clip. And he was so excited, he came up on stage, and he said, whoever anonymously gave those Ten C notes. I want you to stand up. I want you to come forward. And it was a senior gal, and she sheepishly came up. And he said, go ahead and pick your hymns. And she looked out and said, him and him and (laughs) him. And I know it's a really silly story. It is. But it does remind me that I don't pray to the Lord or I shouldn't pray to the Lord Based on all that he is going to give me, I praise the Lord, I thank the Lord, I exalt the Lord because he's worthy of it. He is worthy of my, your, our thanks and praise. Paul and Silas and Job, they got that. May we get it as well. Well, let me continue in verses 26. And I'll read all the way to 40. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice. Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul. He said, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now, go in peace but Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and they've thrown us into prison and do now they throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. That is, you cannot imprison and condemn a Roman citizen without a trial. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and they departed. What authentic praise. They praise God and how did God respond? He does a miracle. He not only sends a Earthquake, but he sends it at the right time. Nobody dies and their fetters are broken and they can walk. But these men understand. They understand that the jailer is probably a retired centurion. A centurion was the backbone of the Roman Empire. And so after they had served, they often were given cushy jobs at higher levels of pay like being a jailer. It was Rome's way of saying thank you. But if you were a jailer and those that you were watching escape, you will be tortured to death. And so this jailer makes a tragic decision, one that should not be made. He decides he's going to take his own life to avoid being tortured. But before he does so, Paul cries out, Silas cries out, they cry out, we are all here. Do not take your life. Now think about what has gone on. This is a hardened, battle-tough centurion. And yet he probably knows about the demonized girl, the girl from Delphi who has been rescued from the bondage of Satan. He has heard the singing. After beating these men, he has heard the singing throughout the night. Maybe he knows about Lydia earlier and how she and her family came to Christ. He's seen the attitudes and then a miracle. We have an earthquake, the fetters are broken, all of the chains are off, and yet the prisoners don't leave. And so suddenly he realizes he is a sinful man in the presence of God, and he cries out, What must I do to be saved? And I love the response no charts, no beasts. We don't have any bulls or trumpets, just the unfettered gospel. Call upon the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. What that means is this recognize that you need to be saved. We all do. We are sinners in need of salvation. And Jesus went to the cross. And the death is cruel, but that's not the cruelest part. It's that he who knew no sin became sin for us. Our sin were placed on Christ. That through him, we might become the righteousness of God. And so he died as a payment of our sin. For the wages of sin is death. And then he conquered death and rose on the third day and he offers salvation to anyone, to all of us who by faith would believe in Christ. And so this centurion, I'm assuming that's what he was, this jailer comes to Christ. I love verse 40. Allow me to read it one more time. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, that is the church, the Christians, they encouraged them and departed. And I've got to ask, where did this church come from? When they get to Philippi, there probably isn't even a synagogue. That's pretty evidenced on the first part of Acts. We don't have Jews. We don't have a Christian church. We have really nothing. And when they're set to leave, they visit Lydia and the brethren, the believers, Well, who are they? Well, Lydia and her family, verse 16. Maybe the demoniac girl who comes to Christ, verse 18. And maybe some who saw it. Maybe we have the jailer, verse 33 and following. He and his household come to Christ and are actually baptized. Maybe it's some of the prisoners who hear Silas and Paul singing and see that they worship God in spite of circumstances. And so God has raised up a church in Philippi where there wasn't one, and before they leave the city, they strengthen this church. This is like the fulfillment of Galatians three twenty-eight. There is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There's no male or female, for we are all one in Christ. This is a church made up of individuals who would never interact with one another, but the bond of Christ draws them together and they believe in Jesus. And I think that church, to large measure, obviously it's the work of God, no doubt about that, but to large measure, God has used a Paul and a Silas that in spite of circumstances, very difficult circumstances, circumstances that would cause us to complain, in spite of those type of circumstances, they keep their eyes on God, they praise God, they worship God, they thank God, they do so publicly. And people are drawn to that kind of authentic Christianity. And the church in Philippi is born. May that kind of authentic Christianity not just be true of them but true of you as it is for many of you and perhaps true of me as well. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the book of Acts that just inspires us empowered by your spirit to live in ways that honor You, Father, at this time of thanksgiving, but really year around, we want to be thankful people, worshipful people, individuals who not only are thankful when things are going well, but thankful because of who you are in spite of circumstances. You are worthy of worship. You are worthy of praise. You are worthy of thanksgiving. You are worthy of our lives. Help us to live for you. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.